0: Okay, if you would please turn to the book of Ephesians, chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. I'm going to read through verse 23, starting at verse 15 all the way through verse 23. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints... And what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe, according to the working of His great might that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And He put all things under His feet and gave Him as head over all things to the church, which is His body, the fullness of Christ, who fills all in all. Blessed is the reading of God's holy, eternal, infallible, instructive, Word. And so, Father, because of that reality that this is Your Word, I beg for the grace and the power of Your Spirit to teach. To teach well. To teach accurately what is here. To unfold the glory that You unleashed through your Apostle Paul, when he penned these words. Oh, and I beg that you give to us the Spirit of wisdom and of revelation, enlightening the eyes of our hearts so that we'll know these truths to the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Spend a two-day getaway where you just devote yourself to reading through the entire New Testament and on purpose noticing everywhere there are prayers or allusions to prayers. Mark them up. And what you will find is that there are no prayers for Aunt Betty to get better. There's no prayers for Bill to get the new job. What you will find are prayers of thanksgiving and praise for our present salvation, for our hope in the future of that salvation, prayers for our ongoing protection, and spiritual growth. For God to work in us, no matter our situation in life, to work in us so that the eyes of our hearts will understand better, see more clearly, and cherish the truth more deeply. In our passage this morning, there is a theology that guides Paul on what to pray for believers. And the implication is that we should see it, look at it, and it should cause us to pray for one another this prayer. And don't depend on that. Pray for yourselves this prayer on an ongoing basis. Why? Because of the context in which we live. Let me give you a feel for that context. Just think about romance. A girl, a boy, a young man, a young woman meet. And it's mutual. They like each other. They fall in love with one another. They express that. It is fresh. It is new. It feels so good. It leads to engagement. And that leads to marriage and they have their married marriage that day and their honeymoon and you can go for a good year or two and it's fresh and it's new. I can't believe I call you husband or I call you wife. And then a few kids come along. A few more years down the road and married people start to realize oh, this is going to take work if we're going to keep that love, that that affection, those good feelings toward one another alive. If we're going to grow in intimacy and affection and love, as opposed to growing apart and still and cold toward one another, we have to work. That almost makes me want to just have a marriage sermon right now. It's reality. But it's just an illustration. Because it is much the same way with our walk with the Lord as Christians. We're born again. I can't believe it. What do you mean work? I can't wait to wake up and pray and read my Bible, and go to church, and go to prayer meeting, and talk all night with Christian friends who love the same Jesus. It's all new. It's all fresh. It's all exciting. And somewhere, we start to realize we grow cold. We grow distant. Our heart's growing hard. Oh, we have to Work at it. That reality of what is the Christian life should cause every one of us who are believers to yearn for the answer of this prayer that Paul prays for our own lives. There is a theology behind Paul's prayer. And that theology addresses a question to every single one of us Christians. And that question is this. What is your calling? Have you found your calling in life yet, Christian? The core of this prayer is about your particular calling. Paul reveals what your calling is in this prayer. And it is to know and to see with your inner being three huge truths. The first truth that we are to see and we're called to see is the hope that you have as a result of God calling you to be in Christ. The second thing that we are called to see is the rich glory you possess in your very status as God's inheritance. And the third thing that we are called to see and know and grasp, not just with our minds but our hearts, is the enormity of the Omnipotent One's power that is put to your advantage and is at work at this present moment for you. So let's go to the text. See this. Ephesians 1. Start with verses 15 and 16. Paul writes, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in My prayers. Let's stop for a moment. So, in the context of what Paul's doing, after that one really long sentence from verses 3 all the way through verse 14, that one huge, theologically packed sentence, he makes a transition to tell his readers how he prays for them. See the first three words? For this reason, he's referring back to the Gospel that he laid out in verses 3-14. to Particularly then, how it comes together in verse 13 for the believers. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the Gospel of your salvation... And you became a Christian. You believed in Him. You were sealed with the Holy Spirit. So in other words, he says this, For the reason that you Gentiles in Asia Minor have been chosen by the Father, predestined unto adoption into His family, redeemed by the blood of Jesus and sealed with the Holy Spirit. For this reason, I pray that you go on to grasp more and more the knowledge of who this God is and how He works. That's what He does. But first, I don't want us to miss what Paul assumes in what we just read about what Paul assumes true conversion to Christ entails. In verse 15, he writes, for this reason, and then don't miss these next words, because I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your Love toward all the saints. So he heard two things your faith in the gospel, in the person of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. You believe. And I heard of your love for the family. Your love for others whom you've never met and then you start to meet. Your love for other persons who are also adopted into the family of God through Jesus Christ. That's what he means by all the saints. For Paul... This, loving horizontally towards other Christians in the body, is assumed. Because Paul does not think of Christianity as some nice organization, or a club that people join. He understands Christianity at its core to be an organism that is supernatural where human hearts are infused with God the Holy Spirit, and their hearts are changed, their affections and feelings are moved particularly to care for other brothers and sisters who like them are being saved. Paul assumes that's what Christianity is. I mean, just for a second. He brings the Gospel with his missionary band to Thessalonica. He gets chased out of town, goes to the set. He ends up, okay, I've got to get away. You guys stay there. Church is planted. He goes up to Greece. And about three or four months later, they're just brand new Christians, he writes 1 Thessalonians to them. Chapter 1, verses 2-3, to and again, listen to what's so important and foundational to Paul. He writes, We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love. Six months later or so, he writes another epistle. 2 Thessalonians 1.3 And he says, We ought always to give thanks to God for you brothers as is right. It's right, why? Because your faith is growing abundantly. And the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. So don't let that just fly by. Just I just okay, it's not the core of the sermon, but it's in the text. I just have to bring that out. Paul says, This is the work of the Spirit. And so, pick up again in Ephesians 1, verse 16. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Okay, now he gives the content. What are you praying, Paul? Praying this. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him. So here He is. He lays out the content of His prayer. But first, he says who he's praying to. I'm not just praying to the idea of a God. I'm praying to the God of our Lord Jesus Christ. I'm not praying to Zeus. I'm not praying to the God of our American culture, where they have human sexuality and the idea of there are two sexes all messed up, and it's a religion to them, and they have won the day, and if you remain a Biblical Christian, you will be backward. And much of this new moralism they're shoving down everyone's throat, it comes with many of those people, a God, a God that they believe that there's a Creator, and they will attach it to Him. That's not the God Paul is praying to. He's not praying to the idea of the fatherhood of God in the sense of He's the Father of all. In the brotherhood of man, all of us creatures and there's a God, we're all praying to the same God. He's praying to Yahweh, the God of the Scriptures, who manifestly is the God of Our Lord, Jesus Christ. Well, isn't Jesus God? Why does He say that? Because He's emphasizing in this whole prayer, Jesus is not deity. But, let me say, I meant what I said, but it can be unclear. He's he's emphasizing not Jesus' deity, that that one person is and always has. He's emphasizing his humanity. As he will go on in this prayer, talking about raised him from the dead and seated him at his own right hand. He's not talking about, oh, God's back on God's. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, I'm talking about a flesh and blood, very human being. His God. That's who he's praying to. The one who is the Jewish Messiah that was promised. No wonder John says in 1 John chapter 2 Who is the liar but he who denies that the man Jesus is the Messiah? This is the Antichrist. The one who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. I, Paul, pray to the God of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he gives one other term to describe this God. The Father of glory. Now glory is that word for for the, the essence and weightiness and and, and then its radiance it's, it goes outward. What does the, his, the, the essence of his character, his holiness, his beauty, and most particularly in the context of Ephesians 1, he's used the term three times unto the praise of his glory of His glorious grace through Jesus Christ. The glory of God is most particularly manifested in the life, the death, the resurrection, and the preaching of Jesus Christ. This is the God, the Father of glory, that I'm praying to. Now, okay. Let's think about the context here. These persons, according to Paul, have heard the Gospel. The eyes of their heart were supernaturally opened already. They believed. They've been indwelt with, they have received the Holy Spirit. They have been sealed by the Holy Spirit. All evidenced by their embracing of the Lord Jesus Christ. But now Paul says, I constantly pray that God may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him. This deduction is easy. Evidently, New birth. That initial moment of saving faith is just the beginning. That by definition, we are in ongoing need of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of who God is. And what His ways are. And how they work. Now, here, just one little thing as you look at the text. Here's the question. Is Paul praying for believers? And very easily you make a switch. Praying for us. That's how he would pray for all believers. Is he praying for us believers to be given a disposition of wisdom in Revelation? In other words, when he says... That you be given a spirit of wisdom? Does he mean like a spirit or in the sense of a disposition? that, That your human spirit will become wise? Is that what he's praying? Like if I were to say, she has a spirit of gentleness. What do you mean? Well, I don't mean there's a, there's a foreign spirit that comes into her that she's desperate for. I just mean she has a, a, a very gentle disposition. Right? We, we speak that way. Is Paul doing that? Or, is Paul praying that God the Holy Spirit of wisdom and Revelation be given to them? See, if Paul only used the word wisdom without the word revelation, apocalypsios, then it could go either way. But because Paul uses a spirit of wisdom and a spirit of revelation, I just don't think it's tenable that Paul means a disposition of revelation. Because revelation, apocalypsios in the New Testament, is always referring to God revealing. So you don't have a disposition of revelation. No, that doesn't make any sense. So he's praying that God the Holy Spirit, Spirit, the Spirit of wisdom in revelation be given. Okay, but that creates another little problem didn't these people already receive the Holy Spirit weren't they already sealed with the Holy Spirit the answer is absolutely Paul's not praying that they be given the Spirit for the first time so look the way I understand what Paul is saying here is not oh you need the Spirit you don't have him and he needs to come into you or something. No. But what he is praying is that the work of the Holy Spirit would awaken them constantly to the role of the Spirit who dwells within them, who is, part of His role, giving wisdom and revelation. That's what I think he's saying. Don't quench the Spirit. Awaken to the Spirit who dwells within you. Be affected by the Spirit. And now you can't just stop there. So then, he says, the wisdom and revelation that I, Paul, am referring to, that you need, is not just like wisdom. So that you'll know how to deal with your children this way or that. Or, you just need wisdom on what to do here in this business transaction. Or wisdom on which classes to take and call. He's not talking about wisdom like the Bible talks about in in Proverbs. A lot of wise things. That's a wise person. That's not what Paul's asking God to do. This wisdom in Revelation for Paul is radically God-centered. It's radically centered on knowledge of God. Let's read it. I'm praying that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him, God. Think about it. See, by definition, every truly converted person, every believer, has come to know God. That's how Paul speaks in Galatians. You've come to know Him, Uh, rather to be known by Him. We've all come to know God. We all come with some information, knowledge of the Gospel when we come to Him. We have come into a relationship with Him as Father through adoption. Paul has just said this. We know Him, and we know things about Him. And yet, Paul is saying there is a sense in which we need to know God more and more than we presently do. I'm so confident that that's exactly what he's saying. Why? Because after 25 years of being a Christian, the Apostle Paul himself confesses in Philippians 3, I count everything as loss because of, or for the sake of, the surpassing value, worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. So that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and share in His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, so that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. There is no having arrived for a believer when it comes to relationship and knowledge of God. And so in our context, Paul is praying that these believers go on to understand more fully God's plan that he just talked about before this. The plan of the ages everything coalescing in Christ, that you would go on to understand every contour of this. That you would grasp the significance of this Gospel in and how it works in your very real, everyday life. He's saying, we need to see how our little, Lives are connected to God's massive plan for the ages. Before He ever created, to when He wraps everything up in Christ. He chose you, predestined you, called you, washed you clean of your sin sealed you with the Holy Spirit. You little peon of the universe, Paul says, you've got to see it so that you will obey the command to praise the glory of His grace all the more. So Paul is saying that Christians... In their local communities called the church, they are to have a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of God as Holy Trinity. You see, where do you get that? Not from church history. The Word we do, but He has just laid out the Trinity in chapter 1 of Ephesians. The Father, the Father, Christ, His blood washes us clean through redemption. The Spirit seals you. We're to know this. You're to know that Christ's blood and blood alone is what brings forgiveness of sins. You're to know it does it by the substitutionary sacrificial Lamb that He was. You're to know God unconditionally elected you before He ever created the world. And predestined you unto adoption, and you are to know that as a believer, He predestined you to walk in holiness and love for others. That's what Paul is saying. That the Spirit would work so that you see it. What, Paul? You could just tell us about it. Why are you praying? Just tell us. We'll study it and we'll get it. I mean. Why should I pray that my child learns the times table? Here's the times table. We got all. Okay, use your flashcards. Go through them. I'm going to test you. Get to know them. Why doesn't he just just say it? What is this prayer thing that God, the Holy Spirit, be given to you in a spirit of wisdom, and revelation, in the knowledge of God? Because he's not talking about times tables. He's not talking about how human rationality leads rational human beings to deduce that there is a creator. He's not talking about natural revelation. I mean, one of the stupidest ideas there is, and irrational, is atheism. But he's not talking about how God has revealed himself through creation, he's talking about special revelation. The stuff He's talking about can only be known because He has chosen to reveal it through the Hebrew prophets. And through Jesus Christ. And through Jesus' personal emissaries who were also eyewitnesses to His resurrection. The only way that stuff can be known is to get it through the book. The philosophies of mankind cannot find the truth of God's saving purposes and design. It's not there. You get it through the Word of God, through the Old Testament and the New Testament. It only comes through the Scriptures and the testimony of the eyewitnesses of Jesus' resurrection. Okay? Got that, Joe? Well, we got the book. And not only that, we're post-printing press. It's cheap. And we go to church. And it's preached. Every Sunday we're Christians. So why does he pray? We can read it. And we can hear it. I'll tell you why. There's probably people in here right now who have no idea what I'm saying. At this very moment, And there are people in churches throughout the world today listening to solid biblical preaching and they're thinking about a football game or where they might eat that day. That's why Paul prays. Because we human beings, the way that we are born into this world that is broken and sinful, and thus we are all born as sinners, we have a natural bent to suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Romans 1. That's why, Paul. Paul talked about the problem in 1 Corinthians 2.14 when he writes, the natural person, he means here, apart from the work of the Holy Spirit, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, the Gospel, that is preached, and you can understand in your own language, intellectually, they do not get it, because it's foolishness to him. And therefore, he or she cannot cannot, without the Spirit, cannot understand them because they are only spiritually deserved or gotten grasped. That's why Paul tells us now in our text, I pray that the Holy Spirit of wisdom and of revelation be given to you. I pray this constantly for you. Because that's supposed to result in something. And he tells us what it is. That it results in the eyes of your heart. Not merely intellect. But that the eyes of your heart be enlightened. I see it! And particularly enlightened to three central truths that every Christian is to know like they know their names. When he says, the eyes of your heart, Paul's making it clear. I am not just talking about head knowledge. I'm not saying we're not referring to head knowledge. I'm talking about seeing the truth with your mind, with the eyes of your heart. In other words, to hear the Word preached. To think about it until you're moved. Until your heart is moved along with your mind to say, Aha! I see. I grasp it. Listen to Paul's similar language to this in 2 Corinthians 4.6 when he writes, and he's already said, here's the truth, we lay it out, and the unbeliever, their mind is darkened. Their heart is darkened. Can't see it. But he says, you believer, guess what? Something's different. For God who said, light shall shine out of darkness, He is the One who has acted and has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's what he means, the eyes of your heart. Enlightened! And so now, Paul prays that believers continue to see more and more, deeper and deeper, with the depths of their inner being, Three particular things. The first, right there in verse 18. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that so that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you. Hope and call. Call and hope. Not throw away words for Paul. He says God calls. He does that. You don't do it. He initiates. The call secures a future hope. The call gives the hope. And thus Paul said, it is the hope to which He has called you. Paul wants us to know and he wants us to understand more thoroughly and experientially that hope. Listen to the way Paul says this in Philippians 3.14. I press on, toward the goal. Okay, he's not there yet. That's what hope is. Okay, you're not there yet. If you're playing in a football game, it's a third quarter, you're up by 14 points, you still have a hope. You're not there. You haven't experienced it. The game's not over. You haven't won yet. You're working. That's what you go. Okay, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God. God called me to this. For the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That's his life. And then he says this, let those of us who are mature think this way. And so in our text, Paul thinks of these Gentile Christians and he prays that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you. and This hope, even in the book of Ephesians, as he will go on to unfold, is central to Paul. In chapter 4, verse 1, Paul writes, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. The calling that produces new birth, that produces saving faith, that gets a person to say, baptize me, and they come into the church, that call gives rise to hope in the promises of the future that the Lord Jesus in His life, death, and resurrection purchased. And when He says, the hope of your calling, He doesn't mean by hope some uncertain idea that the future will turn out okay for you. It's not what he's talking about when he says hope. Like, like, I sure hope so. That's not what he means. He means a firm conviction of the message of the Gospel and all those promises of that Gospel. In Colossians 1:4-5 Paul writes When I heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love oh, again and of the love that you have for all the saints because of where did it come from because of the hope laid up for you Not that in the hope that you'll get that new job or that spouse or a child, but the hope laid up for you in heaven. Well, Peter writes in 1 Peter 1.3-4, 1, God the Father caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now he defines that hope to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading and it's waiting for you. It's kept. It's reserved in heaven for you. This hope is like a 401K or an IRA. You just assume you're not going to take a penalty by withdrawing early, okay? You you can't have it now laid up for your retirement. This is the hope that is the core of the Gospel that Paul preaches and that he prays and they see. To the Romans, Paul wrote in Romans 8, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth Comparing with the glory. That's the hope. The glory that is to be, but is not yet revealed to us. In this hope, we were saved. Now, look, guys, hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes? For what he sees. I have it. I'm not hoping it's here. Do you hope to get married? No. I have a wife. It's here. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. And so Paul is saying, all believers... Have this hope. But then He prays that you would see it. You would see it more and more and more clearly and thoroughly in the contours of it so that it affects your desires. Now, your heart. That's the first thing praise that we see. The second thing He wants God's Spirit to cause us as believers to grasp hold of with our hearts is right there in verse 18 also. That you may know what are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the same. Now, I wonder how you read that. Paul here is not praying that we come to grasp our future inheritance more. It's not what he's saying. Paul is praying that we grasp the reality that we believers are God's inheritance. And He will inherit. See, throughout chapter 1 of Ephesians, Paul has been saying clearly that the eternal counsel of the Godhead, the eternal counsel of God's will that planned redemption, Planned election and predestination and adoption through the blood of Jesus, etc. He's saying, God did all this so that the reflection of His own eternal glory manifested in mercy and grace would come back to Him in persons like you. In me. Believers. Paul has already made clear. In Ephesians 1. That we do have an inheritance. But he is saying here. God also. Has. A future. Inheritance. And it is us. He has an inheritance. In the. Same. We are God's inheritance. Believers, the church, He's going to inherit us. Paul wants all believers, meaning those persons who deserve eternal wrath, those persons, though deserving that, were rescued from the wrath to come through the substitutionary work of Jesus, the Spirit causing them to come alive, embrace that Gospel by faith, and thus they're put into Christ, and they find themselves still with the marks of a sinful heart and sinful action right now, down here, as genuine believers. He says, believer, that's you! And yet, you are to know that because of His choosing, because of the blood of Christ, you, each one of you, is of unimaginable value to God, your Father. You are His glorious inheritance. The community of sinners chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world is extremely valuable, precious to the Creator, to God. No matter what time in history we find ourselves, in the Roman Empire of the first three centuries, or back to the Roman Empire like we're going now, the church is precious to Him. The church, with all of her imperfections, that by the washing of the water of the Word, Jesus will make sure in the end the bride is pure. That church is a sweet aroma to God. It is God's inheritance. Paul prays that we would grasp it with our heart. And the third thing that Paul wants us to really think about, just to get it, to get your teeth into it, is that we would understand the reality, the fact, the truth, of the huge, omnipotent magnitude of God's ability, of God's very power that is presently, right now, concentrated on us who believe. It is being used for our well-being right now. Verse 19. And that you would know. Know what? Know this. Know what is the immeasurable Greatness of His power toward us who believe. According to the working of His great might. All of God's power is working right now To the advantage of the church. Believe it or not. It's working to the advantage of all who believe and belong to Christ. And Paul wants us to really feel that. I say it because just notice how he piles up these words. He doesn't just say, which He could have, and He wouldn't have lost the core truth. But He doesn't just say that you would know God's power which is at work for you who believe. He says that you would know the immeasurable greatness of His power. That word immeasurable is like extravagant. It's over the top. It's outstripping. There are no bounds. He exceeds all bounds. God's power is not just great, Paul is saying, but it is excessively great. And then he goes on to say, this excessively great power is according to the very God, who works all the time. It's according to his working, according to the working of the strength, of the strength of his might. He just piles word upon word. And then we're going to come here next time to the rest of this prayer. But he says, This is the very power that God raised Jesus from the dead with. So, this prayer, it's as if Paul is saying, Christian, try to lie your head down at night and have a pity party while over anything. This, that, the other. So try having that pity party while at the same time grasping the hope laid up for you in the resurrection that the Creator has called you to. Try murmuring and complaining about how your month is going, while at the same time grasping that little old you are part of the Creator's glorious inheritance that He will one day redeem, inherit. No matter what short-term stuff you're going through, 45 years or more, I pray that God would cause you to grasp that His extravagant, Over the top, excessively great, massive power that He used in raising Jesus from the dead that He right now at this very moment is unleashing for your well-being. Because He is. Or Paul is deceived. Christian Paul is saying, May the Holy Spirit wake you up to the glorious realities of your salvation in the midst of your suffering. In the midst of what sanctification entails down here, right now. So that in whatever you're going through, those truths would affect your mood, your choices, your money, your words, your actions. This is your calling as a believer. Jesus stated it for us so we can hear Him pray to the Father about this calling. Most of you know where I'm going to go. Father, this is eternal life that they, those who belong to Me, may know You, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom You have sent. That's Your calling. We're called to pray for ourselves. We're called to pray for each other in the body of Christ this very prayer of Ephesians 1 and we're called to do it while exposing ourselves in the life of Jesus' body to the preaching of the word to the reading of the word that is just assumed both are absolutely crucial. Exposure to the truth, as Paul prays, I pray by the Spirit you see it. You see, they're both so crucial because it would be like this. Someone praying that the food on the table and the water... I pray that it nourishes my body and keeps me strong. And they pray a lot. They pray every day that way. Until they die. And someone wonders, why did they die? Because they never ate the food. It's assumed when you pray, let this nourish my body, you're eating it. Oh, that you would see with the eyes of your heart the truth of these three glorious things. Your calling is to grow in not head knowledge for itself, but in your intimacy with God the Father by knowing the Gospel future hope. And by knowing how valuable you are to God, because you are His inheritance. And by knowing that His omnipotent power is at work right now to your advantage. We, I pray, would grow in this so that we would joyfully say, along with the Apostle Paul, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For His sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ more and more. Let's pray. Father, I pray that You will continue to pour out a spirit of wisdom in handling the Word of God. A wisdom that sees the truth and the application for our own personal lives. That in the revelation that You've given us by the Holy Spirit writing it, that He will dwell within us and cause our hearts to leap at its truth. Father, I pray You do this for those who have never experienced this even initially. I pray that You do that for us who are in Christ on a daily basis. I pray that we are moved overwhelmed to pray for our own hearts on a daily basis before Your Holy Word as we eat. So that we would see, love, and bask in that hope to which You called us that we would believe the unbelievable that we are valuable and precious as your eternal inheritance and you will grab us and inherit us one day and that no matter what it looks like in our own micro personal lives or in our macro society you are presently at work with all of your omnipotence for the good of every believer for the good of your church to the glory of your name. Amen.